Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we are joining you again for day six of sonnet week it is national poetry month we've been talking sonnets all week and it seems like it's just been a few drops in the bucket but uh it's just because there's so much to explore and dwell in and 800 years and seven episodes it turns out was perhaps ambitious of us yes yes very ambitious it reminds me of uh there were some books that i worked on as a uh, in my day job uh which is like some school library nonfiction books and there was one set of books that were overviews of regions of the world and uh one of them uh, was a history chapter on none other than the continent of Asia. A chapter, you say? A chapter, and not a not a long chapter. Four hundred and fifty words. Four hundred and fifty words on, and I just want to make sure I'm hearing this correctly: the largest and most populous continent in the world. Yep. Well, Some at least we've it... been able to give the sonnet a little more space than that. But yes, this is a. <laughs> You know, a highly subjective, and uh, by necessity, we're leaving quite a bit out just because with the sonnet, it's endless, and we don't want to get into one of those, you know, Borges map situations. No, we do not. We are not in uh, the Library of Babel, friends. We are not in that cartography thingy where the map is as large as the world, all mm -hmm. that stuff. No, 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 no. Instead, we are taking our sonnets. We are firing them with great precision as one arrow 
with the bow of Cupid. Um, and then we are running <laughs> to find where doth the arrow did land and we are examining the love wound. Mm. Uh, you know, I, uh, I hear that wound is not healed just because the bow grows slack. Oh! Got that one from my guy Petrarch back in episode three, Sonnet 90. Wow. Well, I'm ah. going to take a point there for the assist, just letting you know. Um, yeah, I mean, keep the stats straight. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, uh, in our previous episode, episode five, we talked about uh, how the sonnet has gone beyond love. We talked about political sonnets. We talked about the many, the capaciousness of the sonnet hold many forms. And we also took a dip into the United States, which is where we will spend much of our time uh, today because the sonnet's going global, baby. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, you know, we're in the Imperial core. We're in the heart of empire. It's America. Uh, shit's crazy. And not only does the US have active military forces in at least 80 nations around the world, but we have a vibrant sonnet scene that has a long <laughs> and story tradition. Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, that is very true. <laughs> that both those things are, are true. And something we began to talk about, um, and this one, you know, I think if you haven't listened to our episode with uh, Dr. Hollis Robbins, I really recommend that. Um, but one of, I think, the most sort of powerful and robust kind of traditions to emerge once the sonnet gets into the states is the the kind of um the black american sonnet tradition um which you know uh as dr hollis robbins argues has not sort of been properly recognized as a tradition in its own right um but i think you know, uh, as as we, you know, we talked a lot about how um, the sonnet had acquired a reputation and a certain cultural prestige alongside, you know, the rise of the Brits um, with Shakespeare and all that done and Wordsworth and blah, blah, blah. Milton. Milton. Um, the man who lost paradise. <laughs> <laughs> um and um yeah and i think that also there there the sonnet you know it brings with it a bunch of tropes and themes and all this stuff um but it's never you know a um a static form and so i think there's a really you know enduring uh, lineage of, of Black American poets writing sonnets. Um, 
all the way up to the present. Um, and yeah, and one of the, the kind of first big sonnet writers in the States is Claude McKay. Yeah, and Jack found this wonderful and well-known poem, America. Yeah, let's dive in. Um, and we have, we did a whole episode on a Claude McKay poem called The Lynching. And yes. that is another sonnet and another example of sort of the way that Claude McKay was using the sonnet to talk about the black experience um, and also to reckon with what it might mean to be black in the United States of America at the time that he was living this poem I believe was originally published in 1921 just to give you an idea of sort of the time frame for this um, Claude McKay's work was obviously really important in the anti-lynching movement of the 20s and 30s and this poem while it's not directly about that is very much about what it means to be a black person at a time that is often referred to by historians as the nadir of black life in the United States because it was when extrajudicial violence was running rampant uh, in not just the southern United States, but also in the north. So I think that's the, the only piece of sort of historical context I would put around around this. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and yeah, so this is America by... Claude McKay. Although she feeds me bread of bitterness and sinks into my throat her tiger's tooth, stealing my breath of life, I will confess I loved this cultured hell that tests my youth. Her vigor flows like tides into my blood, giving me strength erect against her hate. Her bigness sweeps my being like a flood. Yet, as a rebel fronts a king in state, I stand within her walls with not a shred of terror, malice, not a word of jeer. Darkly I gaze into the days ahead and see her might and granite wonders there. Beneath the touch of time's unerring hand, like priceless treasures sinking in the sand hmm. it's yeah it's a really interesting poem on a lot of levels in addition to i think being pretty hard hitting as a as an emotional package um it does have a shakespearean rhyme scheme to it which is really notable it has that big you know couplet gg beneath the touch of time's unerring hand like priceless treasures sinking in the sand, which it strikes me may also be a little bit of a callback to, uh, you know, Ozymandias and Shelley. Shelley, also one of the romantics who sort of revived the sonnet as a form. Um, so definitely a possible link there. But more importantly, I think an interesting callback into the existing sonnet tradition happening here not just the uh, rhyme scheme, but also addressing the country with uh, female pronouns, which I think gets into this kind of conflicted love-hate relationship that is being teased out through the poem much more thematically than it would be personally. But when you have a form like the sonnet that is so traditionally associated with love and 
you're deploying that kind of imagery, there is that echo of what the sonnet used to be mostly about and then what is happening here in, in this poem. Yeah, definitely. That's a great point. It's 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 a to take the to riff on the the courtly love trope and, you know, <laughs> rather than a Laura ideal angel figure, you have America. It's this great fit because, again, even in courtly love, even when the object of affection very much an object is perfect it's still unrequited it is like all of these acts of service done by the knight towards the love object and here not only is that love object contested and possibly not that great but it also fits that like the unpaid unrequited (laughs) work and you know relationship that someone who is black in America would have uh, with the country fits into that kind of that aspect of the courtly love tradition. Yeah, definitely. And there's, there's that really strong, like paradoxical contradictory sense that is evoked, especially very powerfully in the beginning. Although she, you know, America feeds me bread of bitterness, sinks into my throat, her tiger's tooth, stealing my breath of life. Um, all pretty bad things. Um, I will confess, I love this cultured hell that tests my youth. And this kind of, you know, her vigor flows like tides into my blood, giving me strength erect against her hate. Um, her bigness sweeps my being like a flood. Like, that's such an interesting thing where it's like, which yeah, just is really powerful. There's this America's, <laughs> you know, like both hating Claude McKay's speaker so much and then also giving the speaker so much strength. Like, and the strength is enough to like stand against the hate. Um to some extent, which is really interesting. In terms of the form, and I, and I actually, I like really follow that first part of the poem. It's interesting because it has, it's got the Shakespearean rhyme scheme, but it's turn like, happens like after the seventh line kind of? Yeah, and it's it's a pretty significant turn because it it literally says yet it, it's <laughs> yeah. in to, it's like, Oh, Hey, um, you know, I, I like it. There's quite a few sonnets that do that. And I, I do kind of like it as a reader because it's almost, uh, like in a conversation where somebody is like, so-and-so blah, 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 blah. You're like, all right. Okay. You're saying all this nice stuff. Where's the, butt? like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I do sometimes feel that way when I'm reading a sonnet where I'm like, this is great and everything, but I know it's going to change and then you're going to get to the point or whatever. <laughs> um, and it's not necessarily that intense with this piece, but I do like it when there's a, a turn marked by a like yet. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. yes yeah. Oh. Pray tell go on. <laughs> yeah no absolutely absolutely i i feel i feel that big time um yeah and i mean of course the beginning like kind of as we were saying like against my original formulation of the volta as the inciting incident 
but rather as the midway point, as you, you, I think, correctly pointed out, the beginning has a lot of tension in it within it. And that, that paradoxical relationship of, of being both, you know, hated and abused by this America and also getting vigor, you know, from it. Um, that's that sort of tension is is propelling the beginning before the Volta. But then, yeah, the Volta. Yeah, which <laughs> um, especially when it's like. In the unusual. Sort of not traditional line, it's nice when I'm just going to point it out, it's just it's good, but it also totally changes like metaphors too and kind of that's when it gets also yeah and then it get that's when it gets into the ozymandias type i'm glad you brought that up because i i was like this feels like because that's like time is capitalized at the end and then there's the sand anyway um but i'm having a bit of trouble sort of like teasing out even the basic meanings of the the kind of post volta i get so i get like as a rebel fronts a king in state i stand within her walls with not a shred of terror malice not a word of jeer um that's like okay so i'm a rebel and like i'm in it you know like i'm i'm like um and i'm not afraid basically um but then these last four lines are yeah they're just they're they're they seem very complex to me um darkly i gaze into the days ahead and see her might and granite wonders there beneath the touch of time's unerring hand like priceless treasures sinking in the sand I don't know what like what are you I guess this whole second half of the poem how are you reading all of that I am reading it sort of uh just maybe a little bit too literally but seeing McKay and the speaker as not totally distant figures um and literally saying like I'm here and I can see where this leads. And it leads to greatness, potentially, these granite wonders, which I think has some pretty deep resonance in a country where the house the president lives in was built by slaves. When so much of the physical infrastructure of the country and whatever granite wonders it might have had at the time, the vast majority of which would have been quite literally touched by the nation's quote-unquote original sin of slavery, there is also the, uh, I don't know, imperial level scope of then placing the American empire, this complex and potentially deadly but still loved um, entity into the context of something like Egypt, which if you've read perhaps the Old Testament, 
you would know of its own history building great wonders in the sand with slave labor. Um, I feel like that is the direction it's kind of moving in, which is like, you can do this terrible stuff. You will build these incredible structures, but the cost is immense and these priceless treasures will still sink into the sand. And the speaker positions themselves as someone who is enough outside of the Imperial project to have that view of it. Whereas others inside of it may only look to the wonders as opposed to the fact that those wonders, that physical building or whatever is not the important goal of a great nation or a quote unquote great empire you won't be remembered for the physical stuff you'll be remembered for the other stuff yeah that makes a lot of sense that's really fascinating Whew. that hits pretty hard a hundred years later <laughs> literally a full century later <laughs> and it feels way too contemporary yeah. way too on the nose it doesn't really segue, but <laughs> um, I just want to talk about this other poem because it's really, really, really good. It's a very frequently anthologized poem, I think. It's by Gwendolyn Brooks, who... Who has sparked a poetic form in the Golden Shovel poem. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, and she, like was a great, great sonnet writer, like really one of the best, I think. Yeah, and so she was born in 1917, um, passed away in 2000. This poem is called The Rights for Cousin Vit. Um, it's one of my favorites. I'll just say, because I've taught this poem in uh, classes before what happens in the poem is helpful to know which is just like the rights for cousin vit cousin vit has passed away uh but is up to some uh new kind of afterlife <laughs> all right um so that's all i'll say uh okay the rights for cousin vit by gwendolyn brooks carried her unprotesting out the door kicked back the casket stand but it can't hold her that stuff and satin aiming to enfold her the lids contrition nor the bolts before oh oh too much too much even now, surmise, she rises in the sunshine. There she goes, back to the bars she knew and the reposed in love rooms and the things in people's eyes. Too vital and too squeaking must emerge. Even now, she does the snake hips with a hiss, slops the bad wine across her shantung, talks of pregnancy, guitars and bridge work, 
walks in parks or alleys, comes haply on the verge of happiness, haply hysterics is. I love it. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just like in the very basic, it's just like kind of imagining Cousin Vit who had so much life that even in death is like still, you know, can't be hold, held in. <laughs> still is by the still end of is. the poem. Which yeah. is kind of an amazing feat to accomplish poetically. Yeah, I know. I know. Um I know, and I love I love it because it's such a um it also has like a formal rhyme scheme, which I think I mean Gwendolyn Brooks is doing so much with sound all the time and and you can you can just hear it when you read it. Um but it has a, a very, I guess I would say it's a bit Petrarchan-ish um, where you have a A, B, B, A, um, C, D, B, C. So like out the door, it can't hold her to unfold her bolts before the door, her, her before. Uh, and then surmise, she goes repose people's eyes. Um, and then the next six are kind of all connected, you know, must emerge with a hiss, talks, walks, verge, is. This poem is in this anthology that I have that's like a hundred sonnets or something. And um, in the little description about it, uh, whoever edited it, I'm forgetting who it was, said that this poem has no Volta in like defiance of the sonnet form, which I can definitely believe. Um, I also, I mentioned this on Twitter at one point and uh, I got a little excited pushback uh, from, uh, yeah, from the Twitter world. <laughs> um, Connor with the hot takes, too hot to handle for old Twitter. Yeah. Anyway, there probably is a Volta. Well, there's probably is and there isn't. Who knows? Um, but I think it was interesting that that there was an argument that there wasn't. Um, in, in the kind of sense of, like, the whole poem is just like the life of Cousin Vit even after death, which defies not only death, but the form of the sonnet. But you could say, you know, there's some turns here and there, even now surmise, she rises in the sunshine. Um, there's a little there. Yeah, but but with all that rhyming, it's so alive. And also the enjambments, especially at the end, are so big. Um, like, ah, gosh, she's always doing this. So the first... Most of the first nine lines are like end stopped, you know, uh, the lids contrition nor the bolts before end the line. Um, and then, then at the end, you have the last four lines slops the bad wine across her shantung, talks line break of pregnancy, 
guitars and bridge work, walks, line break, and parks or alleys, comes happily on the verge of happiness, happily hysterics is. Um, so there's this like three kind of enjambments and then this is that like <laughs> sits, I mean, is just a wild uh, way to end. But I think it's like, it's so interesting because to me, I'm like, the sonnet is so old as we've talked about and it's, it's conventions are so well trodden and there's definitely some sonnets that are like to hell with all of them. And they, you know, they do a lively thing, but Brooks is like, okay, we're doing, we're doing the rhyme scheme. Like we're doing all of it. And it's going to sound like on fire. <laughs> I don't know. And I just, I feel like this poem is, it's just like, it's got life so much life in it so much life in the sound and the rhythm um it's like bursting anyway which i think is kind of cool because on the surface that does seem like maybe a bit of an odd fit for the sonnet that is not usually a vessel for just joy um but of course the the joy and life of the sonnet even if there is maybe not a volta in it the entire thing comes after a title that lets you know that this is about someone who is no longer around and so the entirety of the poem is grappling with something that is like an inherent contradiction this person who was so alive that they feel like they are still alive actually isn't anymore and you know that from the title as you read through how alive this person is and I think that that in an overlay way supplies the tension such that a volta becomes redundant or unnecessary you've almost got like a 15th line in the title and then the volta is the sonnet <laughs> <laughs> yeah in, in a kind of like inventive way you know it's it's like right eh, okay i'm just gonna get this one data point out of the way and like now yeah, here's <laughs> here's where we're going with this which is like nah absolutely i completely agree yeah, and it just seems to have so much resonance with, like, I don't know, it's it's playing too with that trappedness and like I I was thinking of Terrence Hayes is like, you know, I lock you in a prison or a, a music box, like all these this container stuff, which is so associated with the sonnet, and you know, as again as we talked about a lot in uh or at least a fair bit in um our episode with with um dr hollis robbins like the the theme of you know um being trapped or enslaved has black poets like obviously because of the history um took that in a really really profound direction um and kind of what you're, and, and this poem is such a like, <laughs> you know, the, the sonnet is the casket and like, it's just like, all right, fuck you. <laughs> I don't know. Like we're, we're out there. <laughs> um, too vital, too vital. 
And you get that right at the beginning where you have the casket imagery that is being knocked off and kicked aside and it can't enfold her. And it's it's just, it's not enough. Can't be contained. Can't be constrained. Not going to happen today. Yeah, it has both the sort of information and the stakes, but it also kind of, it provides the the place from which the Volta <laughs> can begin at the beginning in a way. This poem, you know, we're at the, the mid late 1900s now. Um, we're already seeing, I think a lot of playing with the sonnet. Um, but in the next episode, the shit's going topsy-turvy. Okay. Yeah, we're going to get real wild with things. Because, um, like, after a certain point, the sonnet <laughs> becomes so established in so many different ways, and there are so many different traditions associated with it that uh, innovations abound. And, you know, here in The Rights for Cousin Vit, you see a potentially voltaless sonnet. And so, yeah, I mean, this in this episode, we happen to have covered a particular sonnet tradition in the united states but more and more traditions pop up around the world as the sonnet not only travels but also then takes root in various places as had already happened in england when the rhyme scheme gets mixed around and shakespeare becomes a major figure in sonnet writing and then the romantics kind of pick it up again after it falls out of favor there that's a whole sonnet tradition that is obviously in conversation with what came before but its own kind of thing and that very much happened in the united states and now with all of that we get to play around in the world of the sonnet and get really wild <laughs> fighting i can't wait i am stoked would you say i am stoked Woo. i am all pent up oh uh, was it there? No. Will it ever be there? Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossner Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time.